Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. In light of the fact that Memorial Day weekend is celebrated at the end of May, Sarah and I thought it would be interesting to devote our May episode to an issue that is a sort of perennial issue in the arts, and that is the memorials. To that end, in this episode, we are going to consider how we memorialize traumatic events in this country, and more specifically, the role that art and architecture um, play in that process. In order to do this, we've invited Harriet F. Senny to speak with us today. Uh, Harriet is the author of a book that was just published uh, by Oxford University Press called Memorials to Shattered Myths, Vietnam to 9-11. Harriet is the director of the MA program in art history and art museum studies at the City College, which is part of the uh, City University of New York system. Uh, She also teaches at the CUNY Graduate Center, uh, which is actually where many of our friends have received or are working on receiving their PhDs. Harriet also co-founded the international organization Public Art Dialogue and is co-editor of its eponymous journal. In our discussion today, we will be beginning with an overview of the major ideas in Harriet's book, which are laid out in her introduction. And then we're going to discuss two of the case studies in her book, uh, the first being the Vietnam Memorial and the second being the 9-11 Memorial. And um, in her book, Harriet discusses other American memorials as well. And we encourage you to pick up the book if you're interested in learning more about these other studies. Uh, And just a bit of a disclaimer before uh, we launch into the interview. Uh, When recording it, and we recorded it uh, prior to this introduction, uh, there are some points at which the audio got a little garbled, so we apologize uh, for that uh, misfortune, and hopefully you'll be able to understand uh, the overall points that are being addressed uh, in spite of, of those issues. So without further ado, here is our interview with Harriet Senny. So Harriet, thank you so much for being with us today. We're really delighted to be able to speak with you about this topic. Thanks for the invitation. I think that um, in order to get this conversation started, what would be really helpful is to uh, address the material that you discuss in the introduction to your book. Um, And the most fundamental question um, at the start of the story being, what is the function of a memorial? Why do we build memorials? Um, what kinds of of purpose are they supposed to serve for a society? And in the beginning of your introduction, you go all the way back to Europe um, in uh, sort of, I think, 17th and 18th centuries. So conventionally, what was that function? Well, I would say conventionally, the function of memorials was to mark and often to celebrate important events, events that had a national significance. So for example, a war. There would usually be a memorial to commemorate a war and often to celebrate those who fought in it. Or there might be memorials on a national level. We could think about the mall in Washington, D.C., where some of our most important presidents are remembered in various formats. So it's Arguably to remember, although there are some historians who would suggest 
that the purpose of memorials is to forget that once we build them, we've done our due diligence and don't have to think about these things anymore. And in general, that's not a bad thing to keep in mind. However, memorials live on through their use. If memorials aren't used, then indeed we forget. But as long as they're used, and by used I mean people gather on anniversaries or other significant dates to mark the presence of the memorial and the presence of that date. As long as that is going on, memorials will live and we will remember something. I actually um, love in your book how you put forward that idea that to memorialize involves forgetting, that in addition to marking down uh, you know, in perpetuity, a certain narrative that other narratives, other stories are suppressed, that the act of remembering involves forgetting certain kinds of stories or certain, um, you know, protagonists or what have you. Um, in terms of the people that are remembered, um, I also thought it was really helpful in the beginning of your book that you outlined that there are really three different kinds of victims when we're dealing with memorials to individuals um, that are associated with a, a kind of tragedy. So did you want to go over those for, for us real quick? Yes, and I think that this kind of delineation of types of victims is not anything that I've actually seen in print before or heard much discussing that in the process of writing this book. Um, most typically they are um, soldiers who die in wars, and arguably we might say they're victims of misguided national policy. Then there are those who die in genocide, which is a wholesale tragedy. And then there are those um, individuals who die because they basically are in the wrong place at the wrong time, the victims of terrorist attacks. They were not particularly targeted. They just happened to be there. Anyone could have been there or not. It's the, the last group, the people who die in terrorist attacks, that you sort of single out as um, you even use this phrase in the book as the most problematic category. Um, and could you talk about why there, it's such a problematic thing to create more memorials to victims of terror attacks? Well, I think it's problematic because typically and historically we've built memorials to heroes. And if we want to build memorials to victims, I think what's occurred is that we've conflated them with heroes. And therefore, we somehow lose sight of the fact that although many may have behaved heroically, basically what they did was go to work and go to school. So how can we celebrate them? And I think in the process of celebrating them, what we've done is conflate cemeteries where the focus is private with these national memorials where the focus is public and somehow should have a larger sense of meaning. So problematic is they're not really heroes. So how can we commemorate them? And the reason that this conflation of the cemetery with the um, you know memorial is problematic or the conflation of a kind of private grieving with a public or communal um, act of, of creating meaning, right, is is what? Like, why is that a problem? I mean, the sense that I got from your book is that it's because it, um, it, it issues the kind of, um, of, of making sense 
that needs to happen when we're dealing with like national political events, for example. Um, and the, you have this great word you use. You say that um, by privileging emotional effective responses of the kind that grievers would have at a cemetery, these memorials become diversionary. So what are they diverting us from, I think is the key question. Um, indeed. <laughs> I, I think what they're diverting us from is considering the nature of the event. Why did this happen? What caused it? What is it we really need to understand if we want to prevent another one from happening? And cemeteries, which are private and which we all have some experience of, clearly are focused on the individuals who died. And while you're involved with this kind of mourning focus, these larger issues kind of go by the white side. So you actually identify that there are uh, three different kinds of memorials that get produced. Um, and I think you're the prescription or sort of the takeaway message that I got from your book was um, that we should consider more deliberately these three different kinds of memorials and we should consider who gets to be a stakeholder um, in the process of generating these memorials. So could you go into that? The first kind, and it's a kind that I think we're all familiar with, it's become a very common um, contemporary mourning ritual is what I call immediate memorials. But in the press, it's sometimes called spontaneous memorials as a few other um, nomenclatures as well. And that's when people rush to the site of sudden unexpected death and they bring things, commemorative objects that are very similar to what one might take to a cemetery. So it could be flowers or cards or pictures of the deceased or messages to the deceased or even sometimes um, things that belong to the deceased. And that kind of action, that immediate action, seems to bring a sense of reassurance, kind of group mourning, and people take comfort from being there with others who are experiencing the same shocking event. After that, and many times now, these objects are stored in local historical societies or museums. Quite a number of them are at um, the 9-11 Museum, uh, preserved both digitally and actually. But then we have a period of the final moment. And during that period of time, people also need a focus place to mourn. So as a really good example of what I call an intermediate memorial, I would refer to the Tribute in Light. Um, the two lights that were projected into the night sky on the anniversaries of 9-11 every year since it began and ongoing even to this day. And people could see those from any place in, I imagine, in certainly in New York, although they look different in the boroughs and maybe the tri-state area. I'm not really sure of the range of their visibility, but they were certainly um, on the media and prompted a very, very positive response. And I suggest that this intermediate memorial is something that the victims' families, those who are most directly affected by the tragedy, could be put in charge of to decide what is it they need now? What could best address their needs? It could be multiple. It could be a visual object like a visual experience, even like the Tribute in Light. It could be 
some local community activity, they are in the best position to know what that could be. I don't think that people who are mourning, deeply in mourning, are in the best position to commission a memorial, which is for all time, or at least for a very, very long time. Um, for people in mourning, I think it's very hard to take a long view. And therefore, I suggest that the permanent memorial be primarily the purview of professionals in the field, working with those immediately affected to get a real sense of the local community and what actually transpired. But those who have some sense of the history of memorials, what's possible from any number of different professions, architects, artists, urban planners, what have you, I think those people are in the best position to recommend or decide what and how it could be built. And I want to kind of compare this to our whole notion of representative democracy. We don't all get to decide about everything. That would be impossible. We vote for certain representatives. And those representatives, in turn, then get advice and assistance from those they deem credible experts in the field. And I'm suggesting that the memorial process could mimic that particular model. Uh, this is fast forwarding a little bit because we're going to talk more about the 9-11 memorial. But in order to make this discussion concrete, um, I thought it was really helpful to that you raise this issue of the clustering of names mm -hmm. around the 9-11 memorial, that the names have been clustered according to requests made by the families so that friends would be side by side. And you point out that while now that juxtaposition of names is meaningful for the victim's family members who understand why certain names are side by side, in a hundred years, nobody is going to get meaning out of those juxtapositions and it would have been perhaps more meaningful or more sort of intelligible to have the names clustered by the companies that they worked for, for example. So um, it's not only, um, you know, what you're talking about, this question of uh, uh, the permanent memorial needs to last for all time and be relevant into the future. There's also a question of audience, that the audience is not the same as with a, a perhaps a spontaneous or intermediate memorial, but the audience is not just for people who knew the victims, it's for the public at broad, right? And that's why, you know, the public in the form of the government is investing time and money in creating this. I mean, even going beyond just the question of the clustering of names, as you point out, uh, with the 9-11 memorial and doing it in terms of battle or um, the date of loss in, in the uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial, but just the act of naming people and uh, having that be the focus of the memorial and that, con that, that sort of conflation uh, in, in the naming with something like a gravestone, something like a cemetery. Um, and, and this is something that, as you point out, is really initiated with the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And I think that's, that's a really interesting point in the, in the book. Maybe this is a good time for us to actually pivot yeah. and, and address the Vietnam Memorial. So in your book, the Vietnam Memorial has a kind of privileged place as this pivotal site in which we see the the function of memorials in America shift. Um, I mean, from what I understand, this is really the the sort of inauguration of the 
this model that you're talking about where um, a memorial uh, becomes about an individual process of grief more than about a kind of public form of, of making meaning. Precisely. Um, the art historian Kirk Savage, who has written about this most profoundly, calls it the nation's first therapeutic memorial. And in fact, um, the book that was written to describe the historical process of creating it is called To Heal a Nation. The Vietnam War country is nothing had since the Civil War. So clearly something had to be done. And for a time, as I'm sure we all know, the veterans who fought the war were, were not treated well. To say they were not treated as heroes is a complete understatement. Um, often they were kind of shunned, if you will, and in a certain sense even blamed for a policy that clearly they didn't create. Um, so the idea of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was to honor the veterans who fought in it because we had not properly done that as a country. And the idea was also not to name the war in which they fought because it was still such a hot and divisive issue. And in a sense, the memorial does that by creating a really, really large tombstone. So in the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, we see for the first time, I think, the conflation of a cemetery and a memorial because people reacted to the memorial as if they were in a cemetery. That is to say, they touched the names, they made rubbings, they brought objects very similar to the types that they would leave at cemeteries to mourn personal losses. And here on the National Mall now, we have a symbolic cemetery placed directly between the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Memorial and thereby arguably framing it as an essential part of national identity. It strikes me that the comparison between the memorial and uh, a tombstone uh, really works on a formal level. You're talking about the kinds of behaviors that it elicits, but even just looking at it, it looks so much like a tombstone. I mean, if you think of the materiality, um, if you think of the engraving that's used, um, and if you think about the fact that it's sited in this sort of grassy area with nothing else around it. I mean, it, it definitely looks like a kind of, you know, like a, a tombstone in a graveyard, a massive tombstone. Um, but one thing I'm, I'm really interested in is you talk about the way that one approaches it and how one sort of enters the experience of the memorial and then exits it. And this strikes me as maybe slightly different from uh, a typical graveyard experience. Exactly. One starts by entering the names, the, the walls taper, to a very tall over life-size height in the center, but they start down about your ankles. Um, so it reaches a peak in the center when you approach it as most people do from the Lincoln Memorial and then it tapers off again as you're looking off into the distance towards the Washington Memorial. So that the experience is more, as some have said, of entering a house of the dead than simply visiting an individual grave or even a mass grave. And I think it's an, an interesting aspect of the history of the memorial because it's almost impossible now for us to think of it in any other way. But initially, Maya Lin envisioned approaching it across the grassy lawn and not in this prescribed way, but, but due to 
maintenance reasons, the park and drainage issues, the parks department decided to build this particular path, which I would say really augments the success of the memorial considerably. It's a very, very visceral experience. The first time I visited it, I was there to write an article. I completely forgot why I was there and became totally overwhelmed and even began weeping a bit just from the nature of that experience, my experience and those around me. And it's also very, very quiet, similar to the way a cemetery is quite still. As with so much art, and Sarah and I have talked about this before, so much of your experience is contingent upon the relationship of, of your body to the work. So that question of scale. And, you know, you mentioned that the names start, you know, down around your ankles. And, you know, this memorial, I don't know exactly how many feet tall it is at, at its center where it's the tallest, but um, it, it, it gives you this experience of being uh, faced with a, a list of names that is, is literally larger than life that dwarfs over you. And not only is it this massive um, uh, accounting of names, but as you mentioned, having this path that prescribes your movement um, around the monument, it's like you're going on a journey where you're you know, entering into and being enveloped um, emotionally, but also physically by this monument. And then you exit by gradually sort of returning to the land of the living. So in addition to the sort of oral quiet, it, it really does sort of transport you. I mean, it even cuts your sight lines, I think, of other things around it. So you're really um, visually, orally, emotionally immersed into this thing that that just wraps around you. And I, I had the same experience you did the first time I saw it, where I was just very overwhelmed and moved by um, by a war that I had no personal connection to at that time. Um, you know, now my father-in-law got a purple heart in Vietnam, but at that time I was in eighth grade and I didn't know anyone who fought in the Vietnam War. And I was really, in, you know, overwhelmed by it. And that, that's really the word for it, overwhelm. And I think that that's part of your argument is that it's overwhelming and, and it's not about a kind of understanding, right? It's about an emotional, effective response um, that, that it's like the sublime. I mean, it just blows your circuits and that's sort of all there is to it. So, um, it, not only does it not mention the name of the war, as you pointed out, there's also no sense of the historical context. There's no explanation for why these people died. There's no sense of what causes they were fighting for very different from the kinds of allegorical, um, figurative art that we find and in, in European memorials, for example. Well, I think, let me just back up a little bit. I think what adds to that overwhelming experience that you were describing a moment ago is also that it's a mirrored surface mm -hmm. so that you see yourself reflected in that surface, which puts you even further within, if you will, the realm of the dead. Mm -hmm. And under construction, even as we speak, is an education center uh, which is going to be built across the street, ostensibly because um, students today had no idea about the history of the war and the Vietnam War, and that that was something that those who commissioned it originally, uh, Jan Scruggs and the veterans, wanted to correct. Although the history that they planned to enshrine, if you will, in the education center 
is a very celebratory one, one that begins with the Revolutionary War and contextualizes in a rather positive way the Vietnam War, which, of course, had many, many issues that some would say have still yet to be resolved. I was curious, uh, and I don't know if this is the most appropriate place to bring it up, but I mean, in the introduction, um, you bring up something like the the Holocaust Museum in in Washington, D.C., and how different it is in terms of that educational function. And it's still very highly emotive. It's, it, it creates that, that sense of emotion in a very different way than the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Um, but even thinking to uh, something like the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, which is also very modernist, but it doesn't have that same kind of um, naming aspect that you see in the, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in D.C. I'm just curious if... Um, uh, you see this this um, this this uh, kind of memorial that is initiated that is inaugurated with the Vietnam Veterans Memorial as something being specifically American, it's something that's um, specifically distinct from uh, from what we see of memorials in other areas. And of course, the the memorials you focus on in the book are all American. They're all uh, you know. They, they they all exist in American or relating to American um, conflicts, but I'm just curious about that that American characteristic of it, and if it is something that's distinct from um, other other geographical locations in your eyes, or if that's something you've thought American. about. American, um, yes, I have thought about it in the sense that um, I think one of the historians I quote say that Americans are susceptible to easy consolation. And I think we have a rather unfortunate history of not facing up to the tough questions and the tough issues. Um, For example, racism, um, which is a very different subject and not particularly pertinent to these memorials, but it's something we don't really seem to address head on um, in terms of what we might do. Yet, Many of the structures that have been built to commemorate the Holocaust are about asking the tough questions. They are about questioning national roles. They are about moving beyond um, the conditions that allowed for these things to happen. I don't see that in this country anywhere. So moving forward now to consider the 9-11 memorial, you know, in your book, the 9-11 memorial is um, situated as a kind of logical extension of the memorialization that we see in the Vietnam memorial um, in the sense that we have a focus on the individual names. But the the significant difference is that in the Vietnam memorial, we are dealing with soldiers who fought in a war. And as you explained earlier, they can be seen as the victims of a misguided policy or um, an ideology, um, but they're not really victims in the same way that the victims of terror are victims. And so after the Vietnam Memorial, if I remember correctly, all of your examples, I think, are about victims of terror. Um, And so obviously now this is 
the pressing, um, you know, uh, problem of our time. Uh, terrorist attacks continue to unfold around the world. And there is this question of what is the appropriate way to memorialize, to remember the victims. And it, it seems, if I understand correctly, that basically you're saying that our attitude towards memorializing the individuals and lifting them up as heroes, which was so important uh, in the context of the Vietnam War and Memorial in order to overcome that divisiveness that you mentioned, um, that now we're, we have, we're stuck in this strange paradox where we are memorializing individuals who were, like, as you said, in the wrong place in the wrong time. I think exactly that. I mean, the influence of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial continues on many levels in 9-11. Myelin was a very influential member of the selection committee. And in fact, there's an early design of hers that, that some say looks a lot like the design that was ultimately selected. But I think what we have gone on to do in that memorial, which consists of, I'm talking about the memorial now separate from the museum, which I'll get to in a moment, but the memorial, which consists of these two large pools that take up most of the footprints of the Twin Towers with the gushing waterfalls running down and making an enormous noise and with the rims engraved with the names that people respond very similarly to the way they responded to the 9-11, uh, to the Vietnam Memorial rather, by leaving flowers and little notes into the indentations of the names. Of course, here they're on a slanted horizontal surface as opposed to a vertical wall, but it is possible to insert flowers. It is possible to insert notes. It's, impos it's possible to insert small objects, and people do do that. So we're having a kind of echo of that cemetery-type behavior at 9-11. And I think there's also another element of what I frequently call diversion, uh, distraction, what have you, by this very, very loud sound of the waterfalls. Um, it's almost overwhelmingly loud the closer you get, even in downtown Manhattan, which is not a quiet place. And I suggest that that is a kind of reenactment of the experience of hearing the towers themselves fall. Um, and that's alarming. I think everyone knows or has had that experience of like driving in your car and trying to find an address and you can't find it and you lower your car radio. Right? In other words, everyone's familiar on a very quotidian, uh, in a very quotidian kind of way with the correlation between sort of loud noise and, and the inability to think. Um, and so I, uh, what I understood um, from your discussion of these waterfalls, as you just mentioned, with this loud deafening noise, is that it inhibits any kind of um, conscious reflection, that it's a place that makes a space for emotion, that that loud rushing water um, makes you feel, again, sort of overwhelmed. Um, but it's not the kind of space where you're going to think very deeply um, or for any sort of extended duration of time. Exactly. And I think in, in a different format, it echoes the overwhelming experience of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial that we talked before about being kind of enveloped in a sort of house of the dead experience. 
here, the closer we get to the memorial, the more we feel somehow drawn to the abyss. And that was something that Michael Arrett actually intended in the design. He has spoken of that, wanting to recreate that experience. But that's an experience, certainly, that does not encourage reasoned thought. It's very, very visceral, and it's very overwhelming, as you said. I think that that notion of reenactment that you that you raise uh, with the 9/11 memorial and the museum, possibly to a greater extent, is really interesting because we can, in some ways, situate it in a longer history. Even though uh, it, it is, uh, you know, coming out of this tradition of memorials that's inaugurated with Maya Lin, we can think about it in connection with things like panoramas or other reenactments that you see in the 19th and in the early 20th century that may have to do with big battle scenes, but it's not about educating people as to the circumstances, the historical or ideological or political circumstances of those situations. It's about that emotive, immersive, visceral experience of, of that moment. Precisely. I, exactly what it wants to evoke. It wants to put you mise-en-scene in the center of that. And museums, and certainly panoramas as well, I think that's a really interesting comparison, by definition impose a narrative. They put one thing after the other after the other, and they create a path, a more or less determined path, that you must walk. So again, like the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, it imposes a path of we might say, almost visceral comprehension, as well as intellectual messaging. And I think so many critics picked up on the fact that the messaging here is almost nihilistic, that it's, you know, the messaging is, um, you know, sort of deafening noise and this perpetual falling downwards into an abyss. And, and you know, these the water basically, um, you know, rushes into these center um, rectangular um, depths that, you know, formally sort of mimic the two rectangles of the Twin Tower, although on a much smaller scale. So there are these sort of towers within the fountains at their base. And, you know, if you've been to see it or if you've seen good photos, you know that the, you know, the way these are constructed, you can't see the bottom. So they're actually not very deep, but the water rushes in into these black holes, basically, that suck the water in and, and suck us in, um, and, but lead us into nothing, into just this black void of despair. And so there's really, I mean, I, I really appreciated your book because it helped me in reviewing the critical response um, to the to the memorial to understand why I had the experience that I did, which is that feeling of hopelessness. Um, and I think that that whole feeling of overwhelming doesn't even quite seem to describe it, but that's the best I can do at the moment. Sense of destruction is echoed and echoed and echoed in the museum with the incorporation of the relics of the disaster. So you've got the survivor stairway paralleling the stairway that you walk down and you descend in the same way that you had to look down with the memorial. You descend into the museum and then you see the slurry wall, the wall that remained, thank heavens, or we would have had much, much worse disaster than we did in terms of flooding, the walls that remain at the foundation of the Twin Towers. And you've got the last standing column that was such an emotional 
um, structure where people wrote notes and left messages. So really, wherever you look, you've got the relics or the statistics of the destruction that occurred. But the the association, I think, of the relics with the names is what perhaps is kind of problematic. Like I'm thinking about, um, you know, my trip to to see the um, the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and the rooms that are filled with, I think, the shoes, mm-hmm. right? It's so evocative. It's really. I mean, to deal with. I I mean, the, I haven't seen that room since I was 12, but that image still haunts me. Um, and in a sense, what's so moving and powerful about that, I think, is the, is the namelessness, is the, um, the anonymity of the victims. And then when you realize that these victims, you know, that, that, that there's a sort of double victimization, that they've been, you know, that they were, um, that, you know, they were murdered, but then also that their histories and their names were somehow effaced, um, is, is very powerful. That, that that makes you understand what a genocide is. It's when not only do they kill you, but they kill your name. They kill any history of you. Um, and so in a weird way, I don't know if this is going to quite make sense, but, you know, we have the preservation of the names here. Um, the names aren't anonymous, but the people are still lost to us. There's still an erasure of history that's happening here. Well, I don't know. I think what is happening, and I think it's it's somewhat ironic because it's precisely the opposite of the intent. There's a very strong focus because the room that does this is practically central to the downstairs um, where, well, first there are the wall of faces. But in, in the center of that space, there are um, stories by friends, uh, loved ones. It was, But you look at these faces on the wall and it evokes sort of the experience of looking at a high school yearbook, where after a while, everybody starts to look the same. So I think that instead of creating a greater sense of individuality, this has morphed into a kind of anonymity that it's not worse, but it's hard to remove yourself from it. When you're sitting there looking at all these people and you're listening to all these stories and I think on some level, you can't help but wonder why. Why are you listening to the stories of these people who had this tragic end, whose family, who knows if they'll ever be the same, but what is it about these people that we really want to know and what is adding to our experience or understanding of what actually took place? And and this point that you raise about the the presentation of the victims, and this happens not only I think at this memorial, but at other American memorials to victims of terror as well, the the, the flattening of the individuals through the sameness of the photographs within the grid, you know, which you I think a great word for it, right, is that yearbook style presentation, that it it enacts another kind of victimization because whatever specificity, whatever individuality. Um, the victims had, their whole lives now have been rewritten and reinscribed so that they are victims before all else, right? So like you say, it's this, this, it's this. They're defined by their victimhood in the same way that um, many have questioned the emphasis on the Holocaust in Jewish history, which of course is overwhelming, but you really want an entire people defined by the disaster that befell them 
you could say, do you want these individuals defined by the fact that they perished on 9-11? And just talking about that anonymity for a minute, the New York Times, with a very similar motivation, did, um, I think it was called Portraits of the Times. But if you read these stories, it also made these people sound the same. They all loved their families. They were all, you know, wonderful people, et cetera, et cetera. And I had the strangest experience at one public lecture on the book that I gave where somebody got up in the audience and said to me, thank goodness you said that. My brother-in-law died on 9-11, but he wasn't a hero. He was just a regular guy. He was a banker who worked in Connecticut. And it's been, a, as she said, it had been a real burden on her sister to try to make him into something else that mm -hmm. he wasn't. So I don't know exactly what we're accomplishing by all this. So just as a way of kind of wrapping up this discussion, um, can you tell us sort of what uh, you suggest as a way of rectifying those two situations? Obviously, you want to work with the families of the victims. You don't want to leave them out entirely, but not make that that idea of naming and focusing on the, the individual lives, but the broader issues at stake. How do you rectify those two aims in a memorial setting? I think there are ways um, in the memorial itself to do that, but I think there are even more constructive ways to do it in the museums. And I think many of our memorials now seem to be built with museums from the beginning because we see what happened with Vietnam where they feel they have to add one later. Um, now there's a sense that if we want to preserve history, we better do it when it's happening. And there I think it's better off to contextualize the victims within the larger story. For example, I recommend that every one of these museums should have a kind of room or a place to think and discuss what transpired at the end. Maybe something that is run by a museum educator who can pose important and provocative questions so that people can discuss this with others who are visiting the memorial and sharing that experience. I'm not saying we shouldn't honor the victims. This was a terrible fate, and we certainly should not forget them. But I think it could be contextualized in the larger history in a way that would benefit everybody, that it wouldn't distract from our understanding of history, because we can say that, and I have said that I think what these memorials do is they obscure history, um, that what we really want to do and what we would like our memorials to do is help us understand that history and give us things to think about and talk about when we leave, not overwhelm us, overwhelm us with hopeless grief. So I think that is um, a, a great piece of advice for us moving you know, forward into Memorial Day weekend, um, that we really should uh, consider this weekend a moment to pause and reflect um, and not just to have barbecue, um, to reflect not only on, you know, ones who have been lost, but to think about the larger questions that you've put on the table so wonderfully with your book, which is, you know, why do we remember the people we remember? Who do we remember? And what is that memory for going into the future? And so I love that your book actually um, begins, you know, uh, etymological question about the root of 
memorial. Um, and that in fact, it means not simply to remember, but also to warn. And so that the memorial comes, um, you know, is not just about taking the past into the future, but about um, sort of altering the future um, in memory of the past. I couldn't put it any better than that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And we hope everybody has a wonderful and thoughtful holiday weekend. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed our interview with Harriet. If you would like a link to her book, you can find it at our website, www.arthistory.today. And as always, you will find images related to our discussion up on the blog post for this episode on our website. You can also find images and reach out to us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash arthistorytoday, and on our Twitter, twitter.com slash arthisttoday, A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. Thank you.